Welcome on in to Empower Talks. This is the podcast where we talk about careers with people across the insurance industry. Welcome to today's episode of Empower Talks. I'm thrilled to have Claire Davey with us today, who some of you may know as Cyber Claire. After a successful career in cyber insurance, Claire has gone on to set up her own business, training insurance professionals who want to expand on their cyber knowledge, while she completes a PhD in sobriety. Today, we discuss the journey of self-employment, further education, and also the culture of drinking in insurance, where it is now and how we think that might progress in the future. Hi, Claire. It's great to have you here on the podcast. I'm really looking forward to catching up because you've been on quite a journey since I last spoke to you. Yeah, no, thanks for having me on. I've been uh, obviously following your content for a while. And yeah, we did speak uh, last year, I guess, or two years ago and, and been keeping in touch since. So it's great to be on the podcast. And your journey is one that's unique. But at the same time, I think there's many people that will be looking at it and thinking, okay, that's interesting for me but for more than one reason I'm going to sum up those reasons as cyber everybody's interested in cyber in the market and you've kind of really got into that area as your expertise two creating your own business and three further education and and academia so I'm going to get you to start with an introduction before all of those things happened tell us about when you first entered the insurance market and how your career started Oh my goodness. So I'm not sure that many people know this actually, but I took a gap year between A-levels and university to save money to pay for university. And I worked at AXA, PPP and Tunbridge Wells um, because that's kind of where I'm from. And so I was more focused on the corporate healthcare side. And that is completely sort of not related to the London market. And at that time, I didn't anticipate that I would have a career in insurance. But I think when I got to university and later on into second and third year when you're starting to think about internships and graduate schemes. When I applied to the insurance related ones, they seemed to be successful because I had that experience. Whether that's intentional or unintentional, the the world worked to then filter me into insurance. So that was my first um, experience, I guess. And then you ended up in the London market. So I'm guessing when you came in, cyber wasn't really a thing in its own right. So where did you start out? No, so I actually joined, well, I did an internship with Aon between my second and third year at university. Uh, So that was over the summer. And within that, we sort of just got a taste of Um, a particular department and for me that was the financial services group so that was looking at lines of coverage like DNO, FI, um, PI that sort of thing and as an intern you know we did quite a bit but you don't really you know you're not outbroking or something like that but what did happen is that at the end of that they gave me the sort of contract to come back to do the graduate scheme if I attained at least a a 2-1 at university so I ended up within the financial services and professional services group as it then turned into. And at that time, the Aon graduate scheme was rotational. I'm not sure whether it still is. So we did six months in various different teams to give us an understanding of, I guess, a holistic view of insurance, which I think is quite valuable when you're talking to clients. So I started off doing six months with the European DNO team, so directors and officers, and then 
if my memory serves me correctly, I think I did a rotation within the PI team. So I was doing sort of UK and US um, PI. And then I actually did sort of a special secondment to the office of the CEO, which was only for a few months. But when I came back, I decided to stay with PI. So that was kind of my three rotations in that. And so I was really at that time looking at or specializing, I guess, in the early career and things like um, accountants, consultants, PI. And they themselves, if you think of accountants and consultants, were increasingly moving towards offering technology services. Um, a lot of what they were doing was data driven. And so if you think of the larger accountancy practices or consultants, their coverage needed to respond to sort of tech related claims, not just your normal traditional accountancy negligence claims. So I guess naturally I was getting more involved in and having to learn and get my head around sort of tech exposures and then cyber became a bit more um, of a buzzword. So it became a natural progression, I think, but then it was also facilitated by the fact at that time, um, Sarah Stevens, who used to work at Aon, she'd come over from the States to sort of supercharge uh, the growth in the London Aon practice. And she was talking about cyber and she was someone that I really worked, you know, learned from, but also, you know, was a good role model. And I think that piqued my interest. And so when an opportunity came up to work on tech and cyber full-time, albeit a different broking house, I kind of jumped on that. So you entered the cyber market sort of jumping in with two feet um, mm. and it's captured you, it's fair to say. Um, so what about cyber's um, sort of really kept your interest and, and made that kind of your focus for expertise? Yeah, so I guess I started to get more involved in tech and cyber it would have probably been around 2014 and back then you know the the clients that were buying cyber were of a particular nature particularly industry groups so perhaps retailers and some healthcare and in that time between 2014 and now there's been huge amounts of different market dynamics, different client journeys, different exposures to get our heads around, you know, and the market has moved so rapidly in line with client demand and um, just the advancement of technology that I think there's always been enough to keep me interested in learning, which I found to be quite a challenge, perhaps with the more traditional lines of insurance. So, for someone who loves learning, as I'm sure we'll come on to later, it was quite, um, you know, a tick for me or a check in the box to be able to constantly keep having to refresh my knowledge and keep up with, you know, the CISOs, so the Chief Information Security Officers that I was talking to on a daily basis as my clients. And in order to do that, you, you'd already done your ACII by this mm. point. Uh, and you found another qualification. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about that one? Or, or should we say your second? Because the list goes on, I guess. Well, yeah, the list does go on. Um, I, yeah, so I did my ACII as part of the Aon grad scheme. So pretty much, you know, you come fresh in the door and they give you 18 months. And, you know, you're the expert on, on getting people through this. But it was very sort of, you know, your weekends are taken up with that. And um, so I did that. And then I did my master's part-time 
as well in the middle, like later on. And then I came to think about cyber and and also my position within the cyber community. So not just insurance, but thinking about outside of that, uh, whether that's with my clients or just you know, from a technical role perspective, what did my future look like? You know, would I always be in insurance? And so I decided to, you know, with the support of um, the team or my boss at the time uh, when I was at JLT, you know, I decided to work towards the CISSP, which is pretty much the gold standard in cybersecurity. It's really challenging. I guess it's equivalent. It has been awarded a sort of master's equivalent status so it did take about a year of hard study and there's certain bars to access to it in the sense that you have to have a certain number of years of experience in certain domains or areas of expertise Um, so I decided to do that because I think it enables the insurance world to communicate with the cyber technical world in a way that you know, it says, hey, we get what you're talking about. And rather than being just sort of either the boring insurance guy or, uh, you know, a salesperson, really, which is essentially a reputation that you don't necessarily um, want when you're trying to communicate with cyber specialists. So I sort of progressed down doing that. And I think to me, the other benefit was that it just broadened my options long term from a career perspective to thinking outside of insurance if that's where I wanted to go because it's a transferable sort of qualification and not many people have it. Yeah I think that's a really good insight in fact I relate to that quite a bit um because I was in HR when I did my ACII for the same reason like I wanted to be able to communicate with the business and show them I understood what they did. I can remember one of my very first um mentors um before as an in insurance in, in banking this individual was and she so I said the, one of the most important things you can do in your, your job when particularly working in HR is just understand the business, actually get what they do, speak their language. Um, and that sort of was really good advice really early on. It kind of always made that my, my objective. But I, I could only sort of, once I got my ACI, I start pinning down all of the ways it was helping me. There was no way I would have been able to foresee the amount of conversations people just even humoured me with because they thought, I'd be able to understand what they were talking about. And then that meant that I often got told things that I could use to to help the business that they wouldn't necessarily come and tell HR about otherwise. And I imagine it's kind of the same. You're talking to the client and the client's thinking, I won't bother them with that. She's not going to understand or she's not going to be interested. And as soon as they see you've got those credentials, um, there's a kind of another layer of conversation that you're privy to. Yeah, it gives you another layer of credibility and authenticity. and. Uh, particularly one of the challenges with cyber, if you think that it had the potential for huge organic growth because um, the market wasn't very saturated. So you had large potential to make new sales. But in order to make new sales, we found that you always needed a combination of individuals on board with purchasing. So that was the CFO um, and the CISO, so the Chief Information Security Officer, and then the risk manager or the insurance purchaser within an organization. And the most common roadblock for us as brokers was always the CISO because they would say, no, I know from my industry sort of like network that insurance doesn't cover claims, you know, or um, that 
you know, I believe in the technology that we have. And so to purchase insurance sort of suggests that I'm not good at my job, you know, as a CISO. And so I think being able to talk to them as a CISSP qualified person, you know, you can kind of get on their level and sort of make them feel comfortable that you're not trying to either undermine their expertise, but also that you know the risk and the technical controls that they have in order to be able to make sure they've got the right deal. So I think to overcome that sales barrier with a CISO, having the CISSP was really helpful for that. Yeah. So with that in mind, how popular is it amongst the peers of the cyber world in insurance? CISSP? Yeah. Um, I've seen increasingly perhaps on LinkedIn or so on, or people will reach out to me by direct message to ask me about it. So there's increasingly a younger sort of generation of brokers that are working towards it. Again, there's that barrier of experience. So you could work towards it and do the exam. But if you haven't got um, X amount of years of experience, I think it's five years, then you are unable to qualify or get accredited status so you might as well wait till you're um, qualified enough to do it um i think we struggle with a lack of cyber expertise in the first place let alone then sort of that next level of people wanting to uh, qualify particularly in that field i guess general this is a general statement but i find that the insurance industry is not always the most proactive when it comes to doing exams unless they're forced to by employers is what I would say. Yeah, I think I think you can certainly see, I guess, cultural cultural bubbles, you might see, like certain organisations where lots of people do it and it's very encouraged and you don't even have to ask people to because everybody around you is doing things so you think you should. And then when the opposite of that is the case, then the opposite culture is going to follow with it as well I guess yeah I think there is that generational issue as well you know younger people perhaps coming into the market and thinking how they can differentiate themselves Um, but there is obviously a huge time and a financial commitment to doing exams of whatever nature and that is if one doesn't have the support of their employer then it can become uh, quite a big challenge yeah okay so if we go back to where you were at this point so you're you're in cyber with your careers sort of flourishing, you're doing these qualifications. Something's not quite right though for you. What what was the kind of thought process at this point? Um, so I guess I did my CISSP in 2019, I think. There had been a lot of, I guess, a lot of consolidation going on within the market, both on the underwriting side and the broking side, i.e. that there was a number of acquisitions taking place. So when you look around, I guess, from a career perspective, you're looking at the people who sit above you in your organisation that you work and thinking, is that a job I want to grow into? You know, do I want their job? Do I want something different to that do I see a future within this organization and then if if you can't find the right answers with that you look outside right and you look at the alternatives and I think at that time I felt like I wanted to grow in a way that there weren't I wanted to grow in a way that there wasn't necessarily those options 
um, in the organizations that that I was working in. And by that point, I was coming to sort of 10 years of being a broker and and there's an annual cycle to being a broker as well. So you kind of know what to expect sort of with your clients year in, year out. And I really enjoyed working with some of those clients. It was, you know, great, high profile accounts, challenging, so on and so forth. But I had a deep dream, I guess, to do a PhD. And I made the decision, I think, when I probably hit about 10 years when I was around 30 to just say, okay, I'm in a financial position where I can just step away from the day-to-day broking uh, role and make a commitment to do my PhD now and see what happens, you know, on the other side of that and whether I can decide to come back into the industry or in a different way. And so I then had to have a, you know, a discussion with myself around how can I use my cyber expertise to support that dream of doing the PhD so if we go to that decision making because you've done a great job at making it sound like oh so I wanted to do a PhD (laughs) I'm sure how analytical and I think thorough in your thought process you are there would have been quite a few steps in that thought process so do you remember any of them what were the kind of key things that you were trying to work out that you maybe your even whens that you needed in place in order to feel that you were ready to do this Yeah, I think this isn't probably talked about enough generally, especially if you're outside of academia. So I had done my undergrad like everybody else between 19 and 22 or whatever, then full time and then came out and I did my master's part time in the evenings when I was about 26 or something, 26 to 28 uh, so I'd go and do that and work at my weekends doing it. But I was outside of a higher education institution. And so it's very difficult to understand the PhD process unless you're surrounded by academics. And I think for me, it was helpful that I had a friend who was doing a PhD so I could lean on her a bit for advice. But the steps, I guess, were number one to think, okay, you want to do a PhD, but what is going to keep your attention and your passion for three years? And it's three full-time years, if not four. So that's a long time to live and breathe a very niche subject. You've got to be very sure that it's what you want to do. And so once I kind of had nailed down that, you, you know, the process is to create a PhD proposal, a research proposal. So setting out your research questions, why it's important, why it's of value. And that can take quite a long time in itself. And then you essentially kind of pitch it round to different universities. And during that process, you're, you're trying to find a match, a match from their perspective, that it's a, a research that they want to support, that they have the expertise to support, but also, you know, you need to make sure that it's the right fit from, from a university perspective and that they have the expertise to supervise you to do it. Um, so they can, might give you feedback on the proposal and so you're constantly changing this proposal. And so I probably started working on that proposal about two years before I left, right, left or resigned, sorry. So two years before I resigned from my broken role. And there were times when I thought this just isn't going to fly or it's not going to get there. But, you know, you have to remain, you have to learn to take the rejection, I think, is the the main advice in academia. So then once I'd secured a place at a university, you then got to think about funding because PhDs cost 
an amount to do. So you pay your tuition fees every year. But also, as a 30-year-old professional, I had financial responsibilities. So I couldn't just resign, walk away and live, you know, rent-free for three or four years. So I pursued academic funding and I I wasn't sure whether I was going to get it. So I did actually resign from my role, not knowing whether I would have funding, but with the idea that I would support myself one way or the other, even if I didn't have funding. And luckily, in the July of 2020, I did successfully receive the funding. But I think to manage everybody's expectations, um, PhD funding is not like an annual salary. Unfortunately, it is a sort of tax free stipend, but it's a very small amount. So even at that stage, I knew I would have to find a way to earn money as well. And with that, I think perhaps this isn't talked about enough, particularly amongst women, but I had to really seriously financially plan for myself and think about, okay, how much do I need per month? What are my outgoings? Uh, What can I get away with? What's my buffer? And so I spent, you know, those two years whilst I was developing the proposal, really thinking about working hard at my savings and making sure I had that cushion, that safety net, so that when you walk away, you know, you're not um, worrying about how you're going to pay the mortgage, really. So that's kind of the process. And then and then once everything was in place, you've managed the risk as much as you can. And I'm quite a risk averse person, but there became a point where you just have to accept the unknown risk and, and push the, the go button. And that's, that's what I did. So you had essentially a, a business idea to um, complement this time that you were doing with the PhD. That's when we first met. Yeah, so that's probably the bit that I haven't talked about was my own business. So obviously I decided... And this took probably the longest to think about because I I wasn't sure whether to, you know, do something completely different. You know, there's so many options of what you could do to support yourself and that sort of thing in terms of working for somebody else. But in the end, I kind of developed a business idea that I wanted to set up myself and in the end began Cyberclare. And that kind of came about through a few conversations and one of them was with you. So thank you for sort of the guidance that you you gave me at that time. And, and it was just kind of picking idea, you know, guidance from people, picking up ideas, thinking about what I did want to do, what I didn't want to do. And I then in the end sort of created a proposition to start with about something that I was really passionate about so that was sort of learning and development or technical training for individuals within for risk management and cyber focusing on cyber knowledge uh, particularly Um, and then it sort of evolved a bit more into sort of a consultancy offering as well for startup brokers and startup underwriters who wanted to build out a cyber or a tech team but didn't really have the knowledge or the resources to do it so they're the sort of two elements the training and the consultancy and uh, that enabled me to sort of take the bits of my job that I really loved so the technical side and the learning side uh, and develop something that could flex around my PhD as well so I'm juggling sort of the full-time PhD and a full-time entrepreneurial business as well. And how is that going from both from both sides of the juggle? Amazing. I 
I don't think I could have planned it any better. And that's not to say that every week uh, <laughs> works out exactly as you planned. Sometimes one of those things, whether that's the PhD or the, the cyber Claire has to take a back step and I make that judgment call. But I've definitely had a lot more, you know, client support and lovely clients than I sort of anticipated. And it's been a delight to work with them. And I also feel like I've enjoyed the variety from from doing that as well. And then to have it sort of in a position where I can do the PhD without worrying about how I'm going to pay for my food or pay for my mortgage. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And I've been able to fully engage full time in in a PhD and do all the things that you want to do in that scenario. So the conferences, you know, the teaching, the publishing, the writing, the research, you know, all of those things, you want to be able to experience it rather than saying, no, I can't do that because I've got to do this work shift or whatever. You know, I wanted to do everything, which is uh, sometimes means I don't always get enough rest as I should. So tell us about the PhD. What's the thesis? What you what you actually researching? So it's unsurprisingly uh, completely different to cyber. So like I said, you know, you need something that's going to hold your interest for three to four years. And I'm researching uh, the role of online sobriety communities um, to help particularly women in their journey towards giving up alcohol consumption. So thinking about sort of new innovative solutions that are largely hosted either online or on social media. Um, that seem to be particularly successful with women and there's a big gap in the knowledge as to why that is and I really wanted to sort of like dig in into that a bit more. I've seen some of the events and articles you shared on LinkedIn over the mm. past already 12, 12 months or so on, on this and it's always kind of caught my eye as a topic in the sense that when you work in the London market, and I guess this isn't as true now for the last two years through choice or um, circumstances, but certainly it's probably not so much. But the evening, the socialising, the luncheon and everything could become a big part of your role. Now, now I say could become because you know, there's a degree of choice in this. I know for myself, I absolutely let it. And I must say, I enjoy it. Like, um, not so much now with two young kids. I haven't got the energy to. Uh, but in my early 20s, to have a lunch and so on, that felt that felt fun. But equally, it wasn't something I did consciously. It was just something that happened around me and therefore kind of I went along with as well. Can you tell us more about the thought process of this and, and how it might impact how people network and how people kind of do that with more intention? Yeah, so I guess... You know, I'm going to talk about this from my own personal perspective and that some similarities, you know, may be there for other people. But, you know, when I came into the market working in, in relatively traditional lines of insurance, there was uh, quite a common um, behaviour that you would go for lunch uh, during the day, either with underwriters or, or clients. And alcohol would be a part of that and it would be seen, you know, it's sort of a sociable thing. And and sometimes, you know, the lunch would end up being like ending up at dinner time and you're still out. And when you're, yeah, when you're young, I guess when you're straight out of university, 
it tends to be the attitude of like, oh my God, all this free alcohol, basically, because you're not necessarily paying for it yourself. I guess the challenge is, you know, when you want to be able to perform on all cylinders and dedicate yourself to other things as well. And for me, that was, you know, further study and things like that. In the evenings and the weekends, I needed all of my energy to do that. And I got to a point personally where those lunches, the alcohol at those lunches and dinners was just causing me too much energy depletion. And I made the decision in 2018 to stop drinking myself. And so all of then my lunches and networking and so on since then has been more around healthy food lunches or coffees. Like, you know, I'm more than happy to do an early morning coffee or breakfast and and that sort of thing. And also dinner and lunches without drinking. That's absolutely fine. Uh, but it's just about setting other people's expectations as well, that that's who you who you are and what you want to do. The, I guess the most surprising thing for me after making that decision was that a lot of underwriters who I was obviously networking with to fulfill you know, my role as a placing broker and even clients, you know, I found that they actually enjoyed the opportunity not to drink. So when it came to having lunch with me or something, it was almost like, oh, I'm grateful for the day when I don't have to drink, you know, like I don't have to do this. Or I found if I went to lunch with people or dinner with people, if I was the first to be asked what I wanted to drink and I selected a non-alcoholic drink, everybody else would follow suit. So it was almost like the pressure was on the first person to influence the decision of the whole table, which is crazy when you think about it, but it's an interesting social study in itself. And you also attract, I guess, those individuals who you know have similar values to yourself. So I guess I became closer to or, or more familiar with individuals who were very interested in physical training. So training for running, cycling, triathlons, whatever, you know, weight training. Uh, we had a lot in common or people who were studying people who didn't drink at all or never had done. You know, suddenly all these people sort of come out of the woodwork and become your network as well. So you kind of gain in a way that you didn't before. Yeah, because I, I mean, I found, you know, I experienced it when I was pregnant. That was my time from going from lunch in, evenings, you know, any, anything that was in my diary, I was quite happy to be there. And it would usually come, it would usually come a drink. And then when suddenly I was pregnant, it wasn't going to, and, and I was kind of you know, not sure really how that would work. And I was kind of probably quite apprehensive about how how I would cope with that more so whether I would feel like I'm missing out and all this kind of stuff and it's exactly like you said like I just found different ways to do things I was more likely going for breakfast with people than than lunches and certainly not not so much dinners sort of probably having more one-to-ones catch-ups than going out with 10-15 mm-hmm. people in an evening and also I found that people were equally like you said really happy to be like oh yeah perfect don't don't have to um so so I've I find this really fascinating. I'm really going to look forward to to learning about it because even as you were saying that, you know, whoever orders first, I mean, there's so many silly things I can look back on on myself. The only reason I guess I started drinking red wine is because I kept going for lunch with people that would order red wine and I didn't want to be the only person to ask for white. So I started drinking red wine. And if all those people were ordering a lemonade, I'd have probably ordered lemonade. No, so, um, so I guess there is such a psychological sort of impact on that that... 
that is kind of really interesting. Yeah, you know, I I do want to be sort of transparent and say, you know, it's not all roses. You do have to make a decision. And there are things that you will miss out on probably if you don't drink, you know, the later night type extravaganzas where if you, you know, it goes all out of hand and they go off somewhere else to another venue, by which point you're probably tucked up in bed uh, fast asleep. And so, you know, you can't necessarily take part in that banter the next day. But, you know, there's also positives to that as well. So you just got to kind of like reframe it in your mind, I guess. And, you know, you talking about pregnancy and perhaps as a woman, I received less questioning about it, even though I was not pregnant, um, because there is the possibility that I would have been pregnant. Whereas I do sense in the London market that there is more peer pressure for men to perhaps consume alcohol than women. And yet women feel that burden to consume alcohol because they want to appear that they can do the job or they can keep up with the boys because there are far less women, particularly in those placement roles and client advisory roles than there are men. So it yeah, it does create lots of peer pressure in different directions. And if we look at the world, the, well, the insurance market, pre-pandemic, post-pandemic with this, because I guess even pre-pandemic, so companies were coming out and stopping lunchtime drinking. So we've seen kind of a bit of an impact there anyway. So, you know, you go out with another company and they're not drinking and you're not drinking and, and that would have a bit of a knock on. But then with COVID and of course now people are in the office less, when they are in the office, their diaries tend to be jam packed. It doesn't necessarily seem to be the freedom of a, you know, two, three hour lunch to, to slot in there without some really prior planning going on and equally for the young people you know and I've kind of come at this with a sort of you know I must say the polar polar angle with it of these young people that are joined grad schemes apprenticeship schemes and not had the chance to make friends particularly apprenticeship schemes because they haven't gone to uni they've missed out on that sort of social freshers week type part of growing up which they'll see all their friends that have gone to uni doing and they'll do that kind of comparison so when it used to have you know induction weeks and so on I said that's quite a key point to, to pull people together you know, and you know how much alcohol was kind of almost irrelevant that, but more how much socialising being the focus and putting on events to make sure that they would come together. Now, for all these ones that have joined remotely, they haven't had that opportunity. I guess where I'm going with this is, has it naturally pulled back enough that the culture's going to shift because of COVID, do you think? Or do you think this is almost like a pinball machine? It's pulling back and then it's going to spring back back to where it was as people enter it's slightly difficult for me to comment in the sense that obviously I'm not in the full-time place and broker role in London or in you know a broking house anymore so I'm not necessarily seeing that every day but I think one of the discussions around ongoing working from home or remote working is that you will naturally find that the people who make an effort to go into the office every day are the ones that want to socialise. They want to go out to the pub and they will make sure that they've got time in their diary to do so for whatever reason, right? And the ones that don't want to do that probably won't go into the office as often because they can satisfy all of their client needs working remotely, which again is fine. But we need to think about, you know, how does that lack of networking, if we want to call it that, impact people's career progression at any level, especially then at the entry level where you need to be making those connections and investing that time. 
Um, I think, again, also there's a challenge of, you know, most of your learning is done by osmosis at that point in your career. And if you're not sat around those people, you know, there's a challenge, I think, in terms of how much knowledge you can pick up if you're just having the odd Zoom call with your co-workers or whatever. You know, do I think the drinking will revert and become worse I I don't I'm not sure I'm in a position to say that I think I think the city is changing altogether and I think alcohol consumption or the lunch will be part of something that also diminishes because of the situation you know that we have and and like you say towards the end you know probably 2018 to 2020 we had a number of companies that came out and said you know you're not meant to be drinking at lunchtime anyway so I think we are seeing that shift and culturally if you look at 25s and under a huge proportion of those you know a quarter if not more of all 25 year olds don't drink alcohol at all so we're going to have that generation coming into the business who don't want to consume alcohol and we need to make sure that networking events are still appropriate for an appeal to those those individuals and there's many ways you can do that including just providing non-alcoholic drinks that are fantastic at the moment so yeah yeah I remember seeing that myself with the grads um I had over the years I can remember I am and I won't share any of these stories don't worry if anyone's (laughs) listening to this who was one of them I can remember you know the first couple of weeks from the first sort of few years compared to the the most sort of recent ones the intakes that came in and the the difference was huge so, you know the, the most one of the most recent ones they were going um to dance classes together and going out for dinner together mm. and and their kind of socializing was um structured is probably the word for it uh, whereas in previous years you know it wasn't it was like let's meet here at this time and we'll see where we end up so um you know and that's probably going back five six years anyway so I think I you know you can definitely see that we see that with our networking events not everybody that's uh, um drinks and and, and I noticed actually some, some of the people would, would hold a drink and they'd be holding the same drink for like an hour. And I'm like, you don't need to, don't need to hold the drink. Like it's okay to not have the drink in your hand. There is a confidence piece in that. To have the confidence to say, I'm not drinking uh, when you're meeting people for the first time and lots of people are, that is a barrier for people. How, do you, how did you find that? Yeah, that is a huge barrier. And it's also difficult because in that moment, when you're asked the question, you haven't necessarily worked it out for yourself yet. You haven't decided one way or the other whether you're going to be drinking for this month or, you know, not drinking for six months or a year or at all. So I personally found that my response to that question would depend upon two things. One was how long I had not drunk for. So obviously, as I went on, the response changed as I got more confident and sure of my position. And then number two, it also depends on who you're talking to, right? If you can sense that the person is not going to be respectful or considerate of your position, then you probably share less with them compared to someone who you will likely be more of a receptive, understanding person. So I think you just have to use discernment to explain or choose what you want to disclose in that moment. I think also touching upon the change in culture one of the journeys that the London market has been on is one of diversity inclusion and trying to attract more diverse talent to the market from different cultures. And different cultures don't necessarily want to drink or socialise or network in the same way that the historic you know, market has done. And so I think 
how can we ensure that it's a place or a culture that they want to work and that they progress in and that they are remunerated, you know, in line with their performance and all that sort of thing, if who you're boozing with essentially is the benchmark of of whether you progress or not. So I think that's also become a a factor. And I can see that when I teach undergrads now about alcohol policy and so on, that um, when I ask people if they drink, you know, how much they drink, you know, it's a way to engage with them and interact with the classroom, you know, increasingly less and less hands go up as to who drinks because it just doesn't seem to be as prominent within young people's youth culture now than it was before. You're going to have to come back and uh, do this again once you get further on <laughs> your research because I'm curious. And hopefully as well by then we'll have some more observations of what the impact is. I'm certainly hardly seeing anything like what I remember sort of eight, eight nine years ago really in the market now. So it will be interesting to see what the situation is sort of 12 months from now. Yeah, I think across lots of things you know, that we're both interested in, right? Like learning and development, progression of gender equality, all those sorts of things. Like how does the pandemic or remote working impact those longer term? Excellent. Okay. Well, we always finish these episodes with um, some advice. So some advice for the listeners. So something that's helped you in your career. So there is some kind of top career advice you give to people for them to fulfill their potential what would it be I think one that's helped me is to consider my values and this may sound like quite a soft skill I guess rather than technical but to at various moments in your career actually sit down and think about what your values are and let them help inform the next step or the decision that you make because I think when you get yourself into a situation where you're not aligned with your values and in your career it can become quite a challenge so thinking about making sure that whatever step that you're you're taking just ticks all those boxes and that it's likely to make you happy um, and fulfill your goals I would say is one thing and and they're gonna values are going to change over time depending upon uh, your needs and your life changes and all that sort of thing so check in with it on a regular basis the other side of that is the technical side so if it floats your boat always engage in that technical knowledge because I think that is what stands an underwriter or a breaker out from the rest of the crowd you know yes you can build relationships and yes you can sort of get deals done but uh, the technical knowledge is what gives you that authenticity and, and that I guess respect in the eyes of the clients and the people that you're negotiating with and it can get you out of a lot of pickles uh, if you you do know exactly what you're talking about and you can sort of uh, there's always potential to learn from a technical standpoint whether that's from lawyers uh, you know technical specialists in your field you never know everything right so just keep open to those opportunities excellent well thank you very much Claire if anyone wants to find you um on LinkedIn we'll pop it in the the show notes but you can follow Claire and Cyber Claire uh on LinkedIn and, and find out more about what's um what she's up to yeah thank you for having me it's been a, a pleasure to talk about it Thank you.